Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Loudon Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 126. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. And hey, everybody, welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session number 126 you're listening to. My guest today is Mr. Peterson Goodwin from DIYRecordingEquipment.com, who is a freelance drummer and recording engineer himself. Around 2009, he was struggling to pay for the gear that he wanted, so he did a little research, and with a little patience and a soldering iron, he figured out that he could build the gear that he wanted for a fraction of the price of paying for it. So he also came up with the idea of DIYRecordingEquipment.com to actually distribute the information on how to build this stuff and also sell kits that you could build yourself, such as microphones, you know, ribbons and condensers, summing amps, DIs, all kinds of stuff. And he's really expanded the number of products that they do sell. Uh, what I really like about Peterson and his philosophy is one of the philosophies is, is that gear is a tool and that uh, quality recording gear is not a collector's item or a status symbol or a marketing gimmick. It's just, it's a tool for creating music. And I really like that, that philosophy. Uh, he also believes that everyone benefits when the knowledge is free. So all of their kits are released under the uh, TAPR open hardware license and distributed for free on their blog. And their kits are super simple to put together. All the kits come with photo-based step-by-step guides, and it's just a really interesting concept. From a working-class perspective, if you're just trying to get good quality stuff to do the job, uh, this is an option. It's not the only option. There's there's a lot of DIY uh, companies out there, and uh, Peterson is just one of them. But um, I met Peterson many years ago and have just kind of loosely stayed in touch with him. You know, a little bit of Facebook here and there, trade show stuff. And so I invited him to come on the show and talk about uh, what he does. So looking forward to having a chat with him. So Peterson Goodwin coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Let's talk about NAM, Summer NAM specifically in Nashville, Tennessee at the Music City Center, July 13th through the 15th, 2017. I will be there if you see me. Please feel free to come up and say hello, introduce yourself, and uh, let's have a chat. Yeah, always happy to chat, talk shop, the whole nine yards. So uh, yeah, I will be there. Let's talk about Gearsluts.com for a sec. We are now, we meaning Working Class Audio, is the official sponsor of the forum known as Audio Life, uh, where we talk about things that generally we talk about here on the show. We talk about life hacks, we talk about career and work and work-life balance, uh, health and, and hearing loss things, planes, trains, and automobiles, hobbies, holidays, downtime, all kinds of stuff. So if you want to take the discussion further and you want to participate on there, I would encourage you to do so. That would be at uh, gearslets.com and the board is known as Audio Life. So join us on there. And here's a little bit of information for you. This is interesting. The uh, console used to record Dark Side of the Moon uh, was auctioned off recently. It's an Abbey Road Studios EMI TG12345 Mark IV recording console. Anyways, uh, the people that auctioned it off were hoping to get 700000 for it. They ended up getting $1.8 million. Amazing. Actually, $1,807,500 to be specific. Amazing. And I guess the person that uh, ended up with the winning bid was given a history of the desk from um, 
Brian Gibson, who is an Abbey Road technician, and a copy of Dark Side of the Moon. And then they got a letter of provenance from former Abbey Road studio manager Ken Townsend. Interesting. Would you pay $1.8 million for a desk like that? I don't know if I would. That runs counter to Peterson Goodwin's concept that gear is not a, uh, a uh, collector's item. All depends on your philosophy. Uh, I mentioned it to my wife, and she said, oh, that's got to be some collector. Who would really spend $1.8 million for a desk like that? I don't know. Some people are like, oh, my God, if I had $1.8 million, I certainly would. I think I would do something completely different. I don't know what I would do. Maybe I would, uh, I don't know, open a coffee shop. I don't know. And before we get to the interview with Peterson, I want to make sure that you do know that our friends over at Universal Audio are running an Apollo Rack Dream Studio promo where you can get up up to $3,500 in plugins free from Studer, AKG, and many more. That offer ends on June 30th. Uh, if you go to uaudio.com and scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page, you can click on the Apollo Rack Dream Studio banner, and uh, they'll tell you all about that and the combinations and all the different things that you can get. It's pretty cool. Obviously, there's a there's different levels of packages. So if you plan on buying an Apollo anytime soon, I highly suggest you do not ignore this because you want to get those free plugins. It's a good deal. So uh, yeah, uaudio.com. Well, let's get to it. Let's uh, have a chat with Mr. Peterson Goodwin here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Yeah, I'm super excited to be on it. I've been planning on having you on for quite some time, and um, I don't recall exactly what led to me jumping on it. Oh, I I, I know what it was. It was talking with Owen Curtin, mm -hmm. and he brought your name up, and I was like, you know what? I have to follow through with getting you on here. So here we are. Yeah, well, I'm, I mean, I, honestly, I'm so honored. It's like... Looking through the episode list, it's quite an amazing company to be in, to be on the show. So thanks for having me. My pleasure. For those that don't know you, you run the website DIYRecordingEquipment.com. Yes, or DIY.re. Yeah, we, we design pro audio DIY kits so anybody can make their own audio gear. And it's been together for quite some time now. It has. Uh, that's unbelievable to me. Yeah, it's been almost seven years. We launched, I started selling kits in 2011. What got you to start this? Tell me about the evolution of, of the site and how we arrived at where we are today. Sure. So, I mean, I really started years before I sold any kits. I started the website as really a fan site because I was an audio engineer, freelance, you know, uh, working in a coffee shop, trying to drum up work, and uh, discovered these message boards where people were building their own gear and talking about it and giving, you know, more or less helpful advice. At the time, most of it was Greek to me, but it seemed really exciting. And let's see, in 2010, I was obsessively cataloging all this stuff just from my own my own reference because I'd go in circles. I'd get lost on the forum and then find something really cool and then I couldn't find it again or I'd loop back to something and be like, is this the same thing I saw before? And you know how forums are. It's just like, it's so easy to get lost. And so I started a blog, kind of a wiki about all the DIY stuff I found out there. And I, I figured, oh, maybe there's like 50 projects or 100 projects that are out there in various states of completion or being abandoned. And 
by the time a year had passed, I think I was up to 200 and then 250. And then I'm not sure what the number's at now, but I think there are at least 300 different pro-audio-focused DIY projects in the wiki. And so I would interview some people from the forums, but it was mostly an attempt to kind of corral all this stuff that I was getting so excited about, but that was spread all over the internet, on the forums, on tripod, on GeoCities, whatever, into one place so that somebody like me who was stumbling on this could go to one site to just at least get a sense of what was going on in this community. It's interesting, as, as you were telling the story, I, I, I can only, in fact, let me, let me grab something here. Okay, I have two books here in my hand that audience can't see, unfortunately. It's Home Recording for Musicians and Electronic Projects for Musicians, both by Craig Anderton. Uh, mm-hmm. The Electronic Projects for Musicians is, this was his original book from, I'm going to say, here, let's look at the copyright. 1975. Wow. And I had him sign it when I met him. And uh, it's, this is, this is it right here. And oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. It's, um, this was my first exposure from, and this was, you know, like a, a hand me down from one of my older brothers. This was my first exposure to the concept that you could build your own stuff. And it, it captivated me as a kid, but it didn't captivate me enough to, to spring into action because I was like, oh man, this just seems so hard and I don't really understand all this. Your website really presents it in such a way to me that I think that pretty much anybody could do it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it presents it in such a friendly way. Oh, well, that's great that it, I mean, that is, man, I put a lot of work and thought into trying to make it that way uh, because that's that's the voice that I felt like was missing from that community. Was There are a lot of very welcoming people, but they don't necessarily have the time or a good reason to bring a newcomer up to speed. Building a business around that is, I think, what what made that possible for me. Is It started as a, a passion project, and but let's be realistic. It's sustainable. It's been sustainable for seven years because there are a lot of people waiting in the wings with exactly that mentality of like, oh man, this looks so cool, but I have no idea where to start. Myself, being a, a relative beginner at the time, starting the website and saying, hey, this is what's out there. This is how to get started. I would do blog posts like uh, breaking down some of the jargon of the forums and stuff. For that first year or so, it was like rolling down a hill. It was like, I thought that I was really going to be doing this for myself and a few other people. And every time I would publish something, I was amazed to find how many other people were on the outskirts of this community looking in and we're really thirsty for this kind of really accessible window into the into this uh, hobby. Well, it really satisfies a couple different things in my mind. From an educational standpoint, there's actually quite a few electrical engineer degreed recording people in, uh, out there. But for those of us that aren't with those degrees, opening up a piece of gear... I look at I look at my gear like I look at my car. I know how to put the gas in. I know where to right. take it to get the oil changed. You know, I've I've been able to change the air filter. That's about it. Uh-huh. And that's it's I think it takes a certain mentality, but I think what your thing does is it really it invites people like me in to go, "Hey, it's okay. We all can learn from this and do this." So, I love the educational point of it, but I also like the economic part of it. Let's face it, you know, 
it takes a lot to bring a piece of gear to, to market, as mm -hmm. I'm sure you know. And it takes people power. You got to hire people. You got to, you know, do uh, R&D on a product. There's, there's so much involved. And therefore, the price is what it is in some cases. In some mm -hmm. cases, I think it's uh, absurdly high for no good reason. But in many cases, you know, the price is, you know, just what the market will bear along with the costs involved to build stuff. So your products really give us all a chance to get in the door and have stuff that doesn't cost a whole bunch, but it does cost our time. Well, I mean, that's really excellently put, except I would say your time is only a cost if you're not enjoying yourself. <laughs> <laughs> this is how I feel about it. If building the gear is time that you enjoy with yourself and sitting, listening to podcasts or whatever and working on it, that's not a cost. That's just living your life and enjoying what you do. Now, I know how it works. We all have limited hours in the day. And if you're an audio engineer with kids or whatever, and you're thinking, okay, well, this is 500 bucks. This one's 200 bucks, but I have to build it myself. Like, yeah, there's an opportunity cost to spending that time building it. But I would say that's probably not a great reason to, to do DIY, per, you know, per se, like on its own. Mm -hmm. um, because if you view it as a cost, um, it's not that cheap. If you view that time as a cost and you value your time at whatever an hour, usually you're going to have to really undervalue your time to make to com basically compete with overseas manufacturing in terms of the cost. That's true, um, and it's it is an investment in yourself. It is it's an educational investment that I I think is worth it to be honest. Absolutely. Well, and I think it's it's an it's just the whole idea of calling it a cost or an investment is a, to me an interesting paradigm to bring to it because we don't do that with um nobody says, "Oh, you're building a model airplane. Why don't you just buy a toy airplane?" <laughs> and that's right. You know, it's so much cheaper if you if you value your time at all, you should just buy a pre-assembled airplane or why are you doing a puzzle? Why don't you just buy a painting? You know. <laughs> okay, okay. Okay, yeah. And, I totally uh, I'm, not, agree. I'm not trying to harp on it, but like, I, I think that there is part of a, a larger, I guess, bone to pick for me of, of applying, of just like letting the language of capitalism trickle into every area of our lives where we're, we're sitting here enjoying ourselves, soldering this thing together. And we have to be thinking, oh, well, if I paid myself 20 an hour, am I coming out ahead <laughs> or behind here? You know? <laughs> okay. Yeah. I think you're right because I don't think about... If I'm watching a show on Netflix, I don't think, now, if I would pay myself X amount an hour, how right. much am I losing right now? Yeah, right. Exactly. That's what's so cool about it is if you do enjoy it and you don't see the time spending it as a cost, then it's a huge win because you got the gear for cheaper and you got the valuable, fun experience of building it. And that's not for everyone, but if, you're, if that is your wheelhouse, then man... It's magical. I'll tell you a product that you offer that I, uh, first of all, I'm interested in, in, as we discussed through our Facebook chat, I'm interested in, in reviewing your 500 series color modules. But I got to be honest, just seeing that as a possibility, I thought, hmm, this is something I would buy even as, and I got to tell you, even as an in-the-box mixing guy, it's a, it's a, a tone, a, a, a color that, I would be interested to experiment with and see what that brought to the table for me, even as an in-the-box mixer, because there's enough EQs and compressors out there in the world to satisfy 
everything that mm -hmm. is possible <laughs> with EQing mm -hmm. and compression, you know, I don't right. need, I, I don't really need to go down that path, but what you're offering in this color thing is interesting and I'd have to give it a shot to see what it's like, but uh, on paper, it looks fantastic. Well, thanks. Yeah. I mean, it, I'm really flattered and, and glad to hear that. The, the color format uh, for folks who aren't familiar with it is a modular open source DIY format that we created. Actually, it was inspired by a former guest of yours, Alan Farmello. Oh, yeah. He published awesome an awesome article in Tape Op a few years ago called Sonic Varnish about the idea of applying very thin coats of saturation or analog color to a signal to make it sound finished or warm or more like a record or what what have you. Um, and his his premise was like, what is the big difference between an old, large, you know, console-based studio and the modern interface in a bedroom kind of studio in terms of sonics? And he was talking about, well, think about the difference from a signal's point of view in these two situations. In an old studio, in between the mic and the tape, there's the console, there might be some outboard stuff, there's the, the tape machine input electronics, and then there's the tape. So there's dozens potentially of stages there. Mm -hmm. And since it's all analog, none of it's perfectly linear, and all of it's putting its little signature on there. So by the time it hits the tape, it's got 10 coats of varnish, so to speak. When you're plugging your mic into your M-Box or whatever, that's a dated reference now. But if you're plugging your mic into your interface and right into your computer, there's no varnish there. And that's a beautiful thing. But if you if you want the sound of a record that we, you know, whatever, we've, we all associate certain sounds with what we think a record ought to sound like, there is a lot missing there. So long story short, the color format was my attempt to bring more layers of varnish into the project studio or into to somebody who mixes in the box and make that accessible. And so the core product is this three-channel saturation box, basically. Uh, I'm sorry, three-stage saturation box. But every saturation stage is socketed. So you could put a tape emulator in one socket and a, a real transformer in the other socket and a discrete class A transistor stage in the next socket, or we have tube modules or we have compression modules, et cetera. Et cetera. So the, the idea is to make not just emulations, but like actual analog signal paths, just getting more of that circuitry in your signal chain in an affordable and space efficient way. Does it run in series? It does. So okay. um, yeah, parallel is something that we are looking into more now because people have done wacky, awesome stuff with the format we never imagined. But the original intent was, let's think of this as a signal path, as a tracking signal path in a studio. And so it's in series. And part of the magic of analog stuff in series is that if you put a transformer before a transistor, it's different than if you put the transistor before the transformer and everything interacts. Nothing is perfectly self-contained like in digital. Um, it's a a living, breathing system, you know? Yeah, there's a lot of sonic possibilities with these these things. And the format, the 500 series format is, I think, perfect 
uh, a perfect vehicle for that type of a product. So you can, you know, mm-hmm. pop it in and out. And I'll be curious to check it all out. It's It seems like a, a fascinating thing. Um, as far as the, the, the company and how you run it, what's involved? How many people are involved? There are five people at the office at, at any one time. There's me, there's Chris, who does inventory and builds the inventory systems, also does design, web design, a bunch of stuff. Jesse does marketing, all of our product photos, all of our videos and stuff are all in-house. That's Jesse. And then we have uh, kind of a couple people who come in part-time to actually do the kidding. And that's all stuff we do in-house too. So putting the parts in bags, quality control, all that stuff. Uh, that's, That's a couple guys who actually do recording and music and then do this on the side. And you're located um, in Pennsylvania, is that right? Yeah, we're in West Philly. Have a just a little storefront office here that anyone's welcome to stop by. Yeah, and then it, in terms of who else is involved, it's a very we're very collaborative. So uh, we work with a lot of different designers. They're color modules from five or six different companies. Our Passive EQ, which we just released, was a collaboration with uh, Joel Cameron from Rascal Audio. We work a lot with Ison Audio for design. So we, our core stuff we do in-house, but then being in the DIY community and being just the, the nature of it, having started as kind of a collaborative enterprise, we it's hard to say how many people are involved at any one time just because there's so much collaboration going on. Now, what about recording? Do you continue to record? I do, yeah. Uh, but just my own stuff. Very rarely do freelance work still, but I you know, I have my own projects and I now that that time is limited, I like to focus it on my own stuff. Um, so I play drums in a band. I do my own kind of uh, ambient music. Yeah, I definitely stay really active with recording, but I don't do client work anymore. For inspiration of products, where does that come from these days? That's a great question. For me, it's mostly it's the inspiration comes from continuing to do music and record and have the problems that audio engineers have and then try to figure out how to solve those problems. So that for me is where I find product ideas, is identifying a problem Mm-hmm. And then looking for a solution on the internet and seeing, oh, there's not really the ideal solution for it. So that's really what the color format was born out of. The most recent project I just wrapped up, which is not, hasn't made it out into the world yet, is a Tube Screamer-like guitar effects color. Hmm. And that was just born out of me wanting a really quick way to run vocals and bass out to a Tube Screamer. And, you know... Not having one, not having a reamp box on hand, but having my color and thinking, oh, how cool would it be just to have a tube screamer right here with a button? <laughs> you know, that became its own thing. That's really where inspiration comes from. I do I do keep up with, you know, what my colleagues are doing and stuff, but I would say I'm much more plugged into just the DIY community and the practice of recording than I am to like NAM or product cycles and that kind of thing. What determines a collaboration? Is it just people reaching out and saying, hey, we want to try something? For the most part, every once in a while, I'll reach out to somebody. Um, like we have a color called the Colorruptor, which is, there's this company called XQP Audio and they make this cool 500 series. They call it an optical disruptor. It's a really clever kind of high-end distortion box. 
And I actually contacted them and say, this would be such a cool color. And they said, awesome. And they they ported it into the color format. Um, so that's how it happens sometimes. But for the most part these days, yeah, it is people approaching me. So Joel from Rascal originally approached me to design a passive EQ color. And we futzed around with it and added enough features that he was like, you know what, this should just be its own 500 series module. And then it became, that's what it became. So yeah, so at any one time, I would say there are three or four collaborations going on like that. If it's a 500 series module, it'll probably be like a year long process. And if it's a color, it's maybe a three or four month process. What determines why you discontinue a product? They really vary. You know, it's just making room for other stuff. The The one that we get the most emails out of, out, the most emails from that was discontinued is this Aratone speaker kit. I don't know if it's still on the site, but somehow I came across it and was like, oh, I would, oh. Right. It's still on the site because we don't want people getting, you know, 404s, but it says discontinued. And it. I try to put it as firmly but politely as possible. Like, don't email us. It's, it's not going to happen, you know, but obviously people get excited and they send us emails. That one was just a, a case of like a beginner's <laughs> just being naive and, and not pricing out the entire product before it was done and getting really excited. I like learned all this stuff about CNC machining and I spent all this time that I was paying for milling out all of the, the, the boxes for it and stuff. And then it just turned out it was like way too heavy to ship to anybody at a reasonable price because it was a bunch of MDF and a speaker driver, and to compete with other small speakers, it had to be really cheap, and we couldn't make it really cheap. And it was also going to be one of those things where it was like to get the speaker drivers, the minimum order quantity was going to be gigantic, and you know we just didn't have the capital for it. So it was like one of those mistakes where it was like you get a bunch of people excited about a product, and then it's like, oh, it turns out we blew it. We can't really make it. When did you start going into microphone kits? Those are a different sort of collaboration where I'm not involved with the design at all. That was okay. something where somebody contacted us to say, hey, do I make these microphone kits. Arthur Fisher, he's this Latvian microphone designer. And he sent us his ribbons to check out. And I thought they were phenomenal. And I said, yeah, let's put them in the store. And then the condenser microphones that are made by Microphone Parts, um, they're another very well-known uber-professional DIY kit company. You know, they don't need our publicity, but it it's nice to carry them because if somebody's buying something from us, they can combine it and save on shipping and stuff. So we just we just retail their condenser mic kit. I mean, these these prices, like for the RM5 ribbon mic, uh, right now it's on sale for $249. I mean, that's that's great. That's an awesome mic. I think that's... I get to say this because I didn't design it. I think that's such a steal because it comes with the motor pre-tensioned, uh, the ribbon assembly itself. And that's the really tough part. So you don't have to cut the foil and screw it in or tension it or anything. You just have to solder the the ribbon assembly to the transformer and, and put it in the body and then it that's it. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that's a crazy value because it's almost like almost assembled for you. Already. Owen Curtin, who was on a couple episodes ago, was praising your wiki mm. uh, because it really just put a lot of great information and um, uh, resources on one page. And I'm looking at it now, and this is nice. It 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 turns your your site into the place to come to research this stuff. That's the idea. That's the hope. 
Well, thank you. Do yeah. you stay up on what the other DIY companies are doing? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're all friendly and I absolutely, I mean, I stay up on it because, you know, I like those folks and I, I'm curious to see what they're doing and I want to support it. But I, we also keep up on it because I send out a monthly digest newsletter of everything that's new in mm-hmm. DIY kits for the month. So once a month, me and Jesse are scouring the internet to see what's new. So if something escapes us, it's really trying to hide itself. <laughs> I assume that this is your entire job. It is, yeah. It How is. long did it take to get up to that point? It took about a year and a half before it paid the rent. And then there were another two year, two or three years where it was really touch and go every month. And since we launched the color format at the beginning of 2014, that's that's the point at which, you know, I've started the LLC and started to really consider it a business and a potentially long-term sustainable thing. Uh, before mm-hmm. that, it was really like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm still getting orders. Or then there would be a month that was like, oh, the orders dried up. I guess this is finally the month that this thing just ends. So yeah, I would say I would say about three years before I really settled into feeling like, okay, this is my job. This is what I do and and I can plan on this. You did say you were a freelancer prior to this. Mm-hmm. Was there ever uh, an identity crisis for you where you were like, wait a minute, I don't want to be selling stuff or creating stuff like this. I want to actually be in the studio. Did you ever like wrestle with any of that? Oh, that's such a great question. Yeah, absolutely. I remember for years I would kind of wake up sometimes and it would hit me that I am a person who runs a business and has employees and sells stuff to people yeah. around the world. And I would kind of think, that that doesn't seem right. I'm just this drummer guy who, who likes moving mics around. Like, I don't, it doesn't seem quite right. But then, uh, yeah, so then it eventually sinks in and, and your identity catches up and you're like, no, okay, I'm a, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm, this is, this is my main creative pursuit right now. Peterson Goodwin here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to take a sponsor break here for a second. I want to mention to you Audio-Technica, who has been a great supporter of the show for some time. And we really love these guys. They make great products. They make an array of microphones and headphones, turntable products, and a zillion other little doohickeys that we love to buy. And I want to encourage you to head on over to their website, which is at audio-technica.com, and have a look around. They have a store built into there these days, so you can buy products right off of the website. And you know me, I'm a big fan of the headphones, the ATH M40Xs, uh, my BP40 mic, which I'm talking to you into right now, and they just make some fantastic products, and I think uh, we all own something from Audio-Technica in our toolkit, so head on over there and uh, have a look around. Until then, let's get back to it. Peterson Goodwin, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. There's some on your website that I love here that I, I I think it bears repeating, and this underscores a lot of what I loosely discuss on the show. And you say, gear is a tool. Quality recording gear is not a collector's item, a status symbol, or a marketing gimmick. It's a tool for creating music. And as musicians, we believe that the tools for making great records should be as affordable as possible. All of our kits are designed and manufactured from the ground up to provide you with excellent tools at an accessible price. There's a lot lot to be said within that statement, and I just, I have great respect for what you're doing here. Thank you, and I'm glad you highlighted that statement because it is, the I think, the clearest position that um, we've expressed about what we're about. You know, we're not about making, like, prestige gear or the kind of thing that 
uh, to be honest, I just get so, I'm just so not into the whole like drooling over gear or collecting gear or nothing against it. It's just not my bag. And I, I think it can be really counterproductive. So I like to put that out there that it's just not what we're going for. But yeah, I mean, we're working on, we're ramping up, I would say, in terms of, of designing more stuff now that we have kind of a lot of the core systems in place. Um, Joel and I work, are working on a LA4 optical limiter right now for the 500 series. And so that's that's in the pipeline, working on some more utilitarian stuff too, because that's our real bread and butter. What kind of hours uh, or, or time in general is put into a piece of gear that you all come up with and put out? I do track it. I could open up my bookkeeping software and look at that, but I never do because it's so depressing. Um, <laughs> it's like sometimes when I in the, I'm in the middle of it, I'm like, there is no way we could ever sell enough of these to to amortize this design time. You know, sometimes I'm just like, how <laughs> how am I doing this? How is this possible? So let's take the EQP5, which was what our most recent release, that's the 500 series Passive EQ. Uh, it was a collaboration between us and, and Joel Cameron of Rascal, as I said. That was about a year design process. And there was, you know, I, it's a small company. We all wear a lot of hats. So that's a lot going on besides just that. But man, you know, three or four circuit board revisions where we order the thing, build it up. It doesn't work. Oh, good. This time it does work, but it needs this tweak. Great. This time everything's working, but we we don't like the position of this switch or this LED. Start over. Same thing with the metal work. And then that's where a lot of people's design process finishes. Ours then includes, okay, how do we optimize this for DIY to make everything as understandable as possible, to make it easy to find the parts, make sure there are no gotchas in the build. That's a huge part of the process is... Um, making it DIY friendly and designing the assembly guide. So uh, it's, it's really hard to quantify, but it's a lot of work. And um, no product is a trivial matter. We have to be really selective about what we make because there's, even if it's a tube screamer color, you know, it's a good month of work to get a $25 color out into the world because it just, designing the circuit is like the first 5% of the process. You know, mm-hmm. after that, there's all the all the stuff that you just normally never would even think of. You know, you know, Radio Shack, of course, is essentially gone. Yeah, I mean, they packed up in my town here, and I went over to the sale and picked up a couple bits and pieces and some toolkits. And I mean, I'll be honest, I didn't go to Radio Shack all that often, but I was very sad to see it go just from the local electronics supplier perspective. Oh, it's not it's not sad because. You know, some private equity people made good bank on it, and they let go of the asset in a graceful way, and none of them lost their shirts. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it. I'm I, sorry, your sarcasm <laughs> is well read, but <laughs> yeah, but it's I, absolutely awful. It's yeah, it's it's really too bad. I mean, it, I'm sure it was going to go the way of the dinosaur anyway, but it it really is too bad that I can't tell people over the phone like, oh, just go to Radio Shack, and this is the part you need. Go pick it up. Um, so where do you where do you direct people these days for? for electronic parts? The internet, Mouser and DigiKey. Yeah, DigiKey, right. So that's the silver lining is that, you know, the the corner stores are gone, but the the web interfaces for the online electronics parts stores have improved so much 
just in the few years I've been doing this. It used to be they were basically catalog things for professionals, but then as they've become the only choice for the hobbyists, I some of them have gotten the memo and have made their sites less confusing, easier to search. So yeah, Mouser, DigiKey, those are the big ones. And then there are smaller ones that are hob- hobbyist-focused, like Jameco and SparkFun, that have even more accessible picture catalogs with a little bit higher prices. But if you're just making one of something, it might be worth it to go to one of those smaller sites just so you don't have to sift through a thousand resistors to find the one you want. Hey, I want to point this out too. Um, You have a podcast. I do. Yeah. And uh, I'll tell you, there's some great stuff here. Um, Here's an episode title for for the audience to digest. Explain like I'm five, impedance. Love that. Or Mm. explain like I'm five, balanced versus unbalanced connections. Everything you always wanted to know about audio electronics, parts one and two. This is a, here's something I want to throw at you. And no challenge in this. I'm just, I, I, once again, Owen and I talked about it because of his audio builders workshop. Do you think commercial studios are less likely to buy DIY gear because they've got to concentrate on the name brand stuff? I think that's, yeah, I think that's a thing. We definitely don't have the kind of cachet where it's like somebody can buy one of our things and put it on the site to attract customers. We, we have a fair number of clients that run professional studios, but yeah, it's a business. I, I understand name brand is a thing. It's always interesting to me because, you know, if you're running your own personal producer type studio or, you know, a place where it's just you working out of it, I think it's a, a lot easier. But a lot of artists are, I, I think, have become hip to the Neves and the APIs and the SSLs and mm-hmm. all the name brand stuff. Right. But on uh, the other hand... You know what's really cool is when you have you built something and the client goes, "Oh, what's that? I've never seen that before." And you're like, "Yeah, I built it." You yeah, know, I built that. No big deal. Yeah, I know what those knobs do, and I built them. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, well, this has been great, man. I'm I, I'm totally enamored by your site and what you're doing. I think it's really super cool. It's very working class, and um, yeah, bravo, kudos to you. And likewise, it's it's been great to talk, and I really I really appreciate your voice in audio and injecting some class awareness and into this artistic field. I think is so necessary, and and the way you do it is is so great. So I really appreciate uh, being on the podcast. Yeah. Oh well, thank you, man. As you know, as it is for you, you know, it's 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 a. It's a personal passion to do it. Uh, I'm sure, like doing what you do, you you realize you're creating uh, products for people that they get to learn from and become acclimated to uh, their gear and have control over their gear at a at a price that is really uh, favorable. And I know that you'd probably do it to some degree, whether you were uh, running it as a true business or not. So yeah, it's. This I don't know, man. This this uh this whole audio thing, it's just fun. Yeah, there's no two ways to about it. It's just there's no other way to say it. It's just I truly enjoy it as I know you do. It is, and I wanted to add one thing that I uh, I've been wanting to tell you is when I first saw the name of the podcast, Working Class Audio, I was so excited because I just love highlighting that as a salient fact that like we are most of us working class. This is. This is our profession, and even though we're artists 
and we're not used to thinking our, of ourselves as working class. Like this is, we are a part of the working class and we have therefore natural solidarity with all these other people that we're not used to thinking of ourselves as being in the same boat with. And I think that that's so powerful and so, especially now, so necessary that I I just love the idea of, I guess, like fostering an awareness or an identity of being a working artist that is working class and includes class politics. So kudos yeah, that's, for that. Th- thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of funny, you know, you, you said, you know, you looked at the list of, you know, high profile people that I've interviewed, but- at the end of the day, they're people working. And I think that's been the joy, I think, is realizing that when you strip away all the 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 high glossiness of the whole industry and you look at the people, you realize they're just like me. They've just gotten a lot further and and they're a little more high profile and they've right. you know, that's that's why I, I'm honored to to have guys like Andrew Sheps and Vance Powell as friends because mm-hmm. yeah they're working on big records but they're just working class guys right and it's know? it's funny because uh, and I'm totally guilty of this too is like our my professional jealousy is and my economic jealousy is is not usually focused on the 1% it's focused on people who are successful in my field which for the most part means they're barely clawing their way into the upper middle class. <laughs> and they're the ones that we're singling out for professional jealousy. But it's like, yeah, even if you are at the top of the game, you're at the top of the audio game. And so, <laughs> you know, it's like we're all we're all really in it together. Um for the, you know, for the most part. And I think that's that's well put. It's like, yeah, even if you're in the 1% of uh, audio engineers, Say that again. You're in the 1% of audio engineers, you know? <laughs> Which, and you know what? That's really tough, you know? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I th- when I think of the 1% of audio engineers, I th- uh, the one percenters in the audio engineer community, I think of like Al Schmidt. But mm-hmm. Al has been doing it for so, so long. Right. And I think it's, and I'm and curious he, what, your, what your thoughts on this are. I bet it's harder to get into that world now more than ever, just because the music industry is the way it is. I think to put a maybe too fine of a point on it, like if you're in the 1% of audio engineers, it's like, congratulations, you're in the like 20th decile of uh, trial lawyers or something. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like we, we reserve all this professional jealousy for people who are just killing it in our field without thinking about the fact that like our field is where it's positioned in kind of the hierarchy of uh, of class, I guess. I know, yeah. I know. Yeah. <laughs> when people, other people just look at us and go, oh yeah, those guys do sound or sound engineers. Yeah, right. Just, yeah. When right. we're like praising our, our, our peers who have done so well. Right. It's, that's a funny thing about just subcultures in general is like, you know, if I'm at AES and I see Bob Clearmountain, I'm going to get really excited and nervous, but he's not a rock star. I mean, if anybody is, it's him. But it's like, and I know it's that way at like, I don't know, like regional salespeople for like- Pharmaceutical companies? Yeah, there's always rock stars. There's always the bad boy. There's always, you know, it's, uh, I think it's just part of the like dynamics of subcultures. Oh yeah, other industries have their magazines and their blogs and their rock stars and- 
That's that's a really good point. And it's funny you say that because uh, I did see Bob Clearmountain at NAM one year. And I approached him and just like, hey, Bob, so I emailed you. I'd really love you to be on the show. And, you know, he's such a cool guy, but he was just like, yeah, well, you know, we'll figure out a time. Uh, we'll try to make it work. Um, you know, I'm sure he was kind of like, who is this guy? Right. But, you know, he was he was gracious nonetheless. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so Peterson, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you being on the show once again, like I said. And uh, it's it's been great. And for our listeners, it's DIYrecordingEquipment.com. Check it out and uh, go buy a soldering iron. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been really great. Peterson Goodwin here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great to have him on. Go check out DIYrecordingEquipment.com and pick yourself up a soldering iron and get to work. Uh, Until then, we are out of time. So, of course, we want to thank everybody involved. We want to thank, of course, Mr. Cliff Truesdale, Mr. Cole Williams, and Mr. Chuck Smith. And we want to thank our sponsors, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, Gearsluts.com, Lawton Audio, and Audio Technica. And as usual, thank you for listening today. I appreciate the time you take. Until then, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.